Ted has uh, selected Philippians 1, 21 through 30 as our passage. He's going to be focusing, and I'll direct your focus uh, to verse 27. So if able, rise as we uh, together read God's word, starting with verse 27. Ted will reflect on the whole passage, but we'll start with verse 27, which reads, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today. And I've asked uh, Scott to focus on this particular verse, verse 27 this morning, because that is a verse that we're going to focus on this morning. I think it has a lot to offer, but particularly because it's our denominational verse. It's a verse that uh, a number of years ago we set before the denomination and embraced it as a verse that we hope would be reflective of the denomination as a whole, the Presbyterian Church in America, and every single congregation that is in it. So I thought it was good for you at least to know that, uh, and also for us to take a look at it uh, this morning for the reasons why uh, we have set this before us and how it's relevant to our congregation. So before we begin, let's look to our God once again in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come together in a place like this and to unite our hearts and voices to give you the praise and the thanks that you deserve. And that as we gather in this place, it really does become a sanctuary because it's where we, your people, meet with you, our God. And Lord, we also are here so we can hear from you. So we ask that you would please speak to us from your word this morning. Because whenever you speak, things happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. So speak to us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The first thing that really you notice about that particular verse is that it begins and ends with reference to the gospel. It is all about the gospel. The concern that that Paul has for the Philippian church is that the gospel be absolutely central to their life together. 
This is the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as Paul elaborates in 1 Corinthians 15, that it says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the centrality of the entire Christian faith, that our God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty that, that we deserve to have. But he paid it in our place. Our sins are forgiven. We can now be regarded as children of the living God, that we know that we are not going to hell, but we have instead eternal life. This is the gospel. But the point that I want to draw your attention to, that I think Paul is concerned about here, is that the gospel is more than just information for us to say, yes, I agree with that. I believe it's true. For, for Paul and for the New Testament witness, it is much more than that. We are told over and over again in so many different contexts, it is the power of God unto salvation. More than just information, it has the power of God to change lives. Now think about power, many different ways. In the business world, I guess you talk about money is power. In the scientific world, it's probably nothing greater than nuclear power. In the world of the government, it's all about gathering to yourself political power. We talk about military power. In my day and age, it was power to the people. We heard phrases like black power, and it just goes on and on. There are so many references. A lot of people would say that really all of life is about us is trying to accumulate and exercise power. I would propose to you that the most potent force, the greatest source of power in the universe is the gospel itself. Because all these other things, as important as they are, as good as they are, and how much they can be leveraged for good, too often in the hands of sinful men are often leveraged for evil. The only thing that really can make a difference is the power of the gospel because it is only the gospel that can save and change a human soul. None of these other sources can do that, however significant or important they might be to our daily existence. This is the power of the gospel, more than just information, and it's the only way for us to really make a difference whether it's in our lives, in our families, in our communities, or in the world. I think about people like Zacchaeus uh, in the New Testament, the, the New Testament witness to this. Zacchaeus, this corrupt government official, this corrupt businessman who was a Jew using the power of Rome to collect taxes for Rome, and then whatever level of income he wanted to live at, he had the power of Rome, the military might of Rome, to say, collect our taxes, but use our power to collect whatever you want for your, your lifestyle. A traitor to his own people, a parasite living off his own people, this is a corrupt businessman, a corrupt government official, until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, his life was turned upside down. This man 
was changed. And he said right from the beginning, if I have defrauded anybody, I'm going to give them back multiple times whatever I took from them. He became someone who gave of his resources to the poor. This is the power of the gospel. I think of a, a person like the Gerasene demoniac uh, in, the, in the New Testament. This man possessed by all these demons who was running around, uh, destroying himself, destroying others. Everybody was terrified. Nobody could control this guy. He was running amok on the countryside until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, he was set free from all the demons that tormented him. If we're going to see people set free from the demons that torment them, from all the things that addict us and keep us in their control, whether it's anger or substance or whatever it might be, it's only going to be through the power of the gospel to save and to change the human soul. I think about the testimony of history itself. Uh, you look, you, our, 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 the Apostle Paul, look at this guy, this religious zealot, this, this guy who is uh, an extremist, and he's going around killing Christians. He's so dedicated to his faith, to the Jewish faith, that he is arresting, jailing, killing Christians until he meets Jesus. He's set free. His life has changed and he becomes the greatest apostle of this gospel that the world has ever known. And it goes on with other people like that. There's Augustine, uh, this, this guy living several hundred years later who is trying to find love in all the wrong places. Uh, this guy who is living a lifestyle of, of drugs and immorality and alcohol and everything else, uh, orgies almost every night. He's trying to fill an empty life and having no success at it until he meets Jesus. And this is the man who now passes on into history, giving us a phrases like, Your, our souls cannot find their rest until they find their rest in thee. And he becomes maybe the greatest theologian that the church uh, has ever seen. This is the power of the gospel. I think of other people in the testimony of history. Look at John Newton, uh, for example. This evil corrupt slave trader, bringing slaves from Africa in the holds of his ships, half of whom would never even make the wretched journey. He didn't care. As long as he got his paycheck at the other end, slave ship after slave ship that he would bring, multiple slave ships. This was the nature of this man until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, his life was turned upside down. And he became the, the author of maybe the greatest hymn that we've ever known, Amazing Grace. And he became a beloved pastor uh, in England. This is the power of the gospel. And I think of my own life. And years ago, when God took me, and he entered into my life and saved me from my sins and made me one of his children. And to be honest with you, the only reason I'm in the ministry at all today it's because I am convinced that the gospel is the only hope for an individual person, for any family or community or the world itself. Because I see the testimony of Scripture, I see the testimony of history, I see the testimony of my own life, of what Jesus has done in my life. And this is what we need to understand. Paul is saying to these Philippian Christians, it's all about the gospel. And I hope that there's nobody here 
who will leave without themselves considering this gospel, what God has done for us in Christ. And then at the cross, we really do see what our sin deserves. But at the cross, we see how much God loves us and how far he is willing to go to claim us for himself again. We see in the cross and the resurrection the liberating power of the gospel to save and change the human soul. And then what he does is once we have experienced that, he takes this gospel, this most potent force in the, in the universe, more than money, more than nuclear power, more than military power, political power, whatever else, and he says to his people, here, you take it now. This is yours and you take it to the rest of the world. You have in your possession now the most potent force in the universe. You become an instrument of change in this world, not in and of yourselves, but through the power of this gospel. And he doesn't have any other plan B uh, that this is gonna happen. He, you are saved by the gospel, he then gives this gospel to his people and says, you take it forth into the world. And this is what he wants this Philippian Christians to grasp, it is all about the gospel here and the, the ability that it has to change lives. And that's why he says, conduct yourselves then in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, what does that phrase mean? Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. At a minimum, it certainly means that we begin to treat others with the same grace and love that we, with which we've been treated. That as we have been treated with amazing grace, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we begin to treat other people the same way, extending to them the same kindness and compassion and patience and forbearance and forgiveness that we ourselves have begun to experience. And when we do that, change really begins to happen within our spheres of influence. But I think Paul is going even beyond that. Because you look at this, this passage, only conduct yourselves manner worthy of gospel of Christ, and it really follows what he's been saying in verse 21, which is printed in your, your bulletins, where he says for him, and I think this is reflective of what it means to, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, where he says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, that just means fruitful labor for me. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I mean, I didn't know we had a choice, but apparently we do. Uh, here he says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I desire to depart to be with Christ. So that's so much better. But to remain in the flesh, that's what's important. That's what's necessary. For me to live is Christ. See, one thing you notice about Paul, if you read through the New Testament and you read through Acts, for example, and his epistles, one thing that you'll pick up from Paul is that he never got over how excited he was about being saved about having his sins forgiven, being called a child of God. When given the opportunity in the books of Acts three times, we're given his whole story about how Jesus came into his life and set him free and changed him forever. Uh, you look at the, the opening to the, the book of Ephesians, for example, and basically Paul just kind of goes nuts. Uh, he failed Greek grammar 101. 
uh, when he wrote that, that, that sentence because it just goes on for one sentence, starting in verse 3 all the way through verse 14 and 15. It's just one sentence because he gets so carried away with, I can't believe that God set me apart from the beginning of time, that he came into this world, he redeemed me from my sins, he's given me the Holy Spirit, he has sealed me as one of his forever, and he just goes crazy with that. He was so excited about being saved, and he never got over that. I find that sometimes I do get over it. I find that a lot of Christians do kind of forget that they've lost the wonder and the joy of their own salvation. And if there's one thing I could pray for for all of us all the time, for myself, is that God would cultivate in you always in increasing measure the wonder and joy of your own salvation. And that you would therefore increasingly be able to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel so that you would be able to say truly when you got up every morning and started a new day for me to live as Christ. As a worker in the workplace, as a husband or a wife, as a father or mother, as a student, whatever it might be, for me to go into this day is to live for Jesus and still touch time as he calls me home or comes again to take me to himself. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you don't understand the gospel that we've just been talking about, then something like that just sounds kind of crazy. It sounds ultra-radical. I mean, really, all things in moderation, right? You, you can be religious, believe what you want, but just kind of keep it cool uh, kind of thing. That's not how Paul understands. He, when he understands who God is, what Jesus has done, he is excited beyond measure. And this is what it looks like for him to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is the kind of life he's calling the Philippians to. But it's, it goes beyond just an individual excitement. What he says for the Philippians is what I believe he's saying for us and to the church as a whole. I want you to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so whether I come again and see you for myself, that I will see or not, that I will hear of you, that I will understand that you are of the, of the same mind of, the, of one spirit striving side by side for the faith of this gospel. See, the gospel not only has an incredible energizing effect to us individually, when we understand what it really means for us to be saved, what it means for us to be a child of God, but it also has an incredible unifying effect to the people of God as, as well. It brings us together under the banner of Jesus, under the banner of the gospel itself. The, the, the gospel has a unifying and energizing force to the people of God. And so he's saying, I want to see you conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, but I also want to see you as an expression of that, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, it's very interesting, the backdrop to, to that, that text and really to all of Philippians. Uh, it helps us understand what Paul is really driving at here. Because, you see, Philippians is a very unique letter. Because Philippi is a very unique place. It was, it was not a, a Jewish community that so many places that Paul would go to and go to the Jewish synagogue, whatever. When he went to Philippi, we're told in Acts 16, he couldn't find enough Jews that there was even a synagogue there. He had to go down by the riverside uh, to find just a handful of Jews uh, who were washing clothes and assembled there. That was all there was. It was not a Jewish community. It really wasn't even a Greek community, not anymore. It was actually a Roman community. And more than that, it was a Roman military 
community. That's who he's writing to. And a lot of the terminology and imagery that he uses in the book of Philippians is Roman military uh, uh, connotations. And that's because years before, not too much longer actually, one of the greatest battles in history had been fought on the plains of Philippi. And this is when the armies of Rome under the general Octavian had come together, and they fought the armies of Anthony and Cleopatra who had come up from Egypt, and they fought together on the plains of Philippi. And of course, Octavian defeated them, Cleopatra goes back home, snake bites her, it's all over, you know, kind of thing. But the point of the matter is, the Romans set up shop in Philippi. They took over this little sleepy village, that's where they made their command center, and after the battle was over and after the Egyptians were gone and this sort of thing, they stayed there to control the region. And so it became a a Roman military community, it became a Roman retirement community that was there. And so the terminology that is being used in Philippians is reflective of Roman military strategy. As a matter of fact, it's particularly reflective of one one, uh, strategy that the Romans employed that enabled them to conquer the whole world. It was started by Alexander the Great. It was refined under the rule of Julius Caesar and now is being used and it had made the Romans invincible. And it's what we call the Roman phalanx or the Roman turtle, whatever you're Have you seen the movie Gladiator? Then you've got some idea uh, of what we're talking about here. See, the way you used to fight a battle in the old days is that you would line up all your guys on this side of the valley, and then the enemy would line up on their side of the valley, and you would rush together into the middle of the valley and have a really big fight. And whoever had the mostest and the biggest and the baddest people tended to win that fight. But the Romans changed the rules of the game, starting with, well, actually with Alexander, then Julius Caesar, and so forth. They changed the rules of the game. So everybody would line up on their side of the valley, but instead of just charging into the middle, the Romans started to beat the drums and blow the horns and go into, in effect, uh, a marching band routine. And they would just start to march in rows, crisscrossing with each other on this side of the valley. And the, you know, the Goths or the Visigoths that are over here or whatever, they're just kind of watching this thing, this happen. And as you watch the Romans, pretty soon you realize that they have marched themselves into boxes of men, like a several hundred wide, several hundred deep, staggered all across this side of the valley. And then uh, these horns would blow and all of these shields would come up all the way around. And another set of shields would go over the top, and they were all custom designed so that they would link up with one another. So what have you got? A human tank, you see. Then another set of horns would blow, and all these long pikes would come out through these little holes in all the shields. And then the Romans would start coming across the valley. So here they come. You guys can be the Romans. So you guys are chunk, 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 chunk. Here you come. And these guys have been watching the show the whole time. Who knows what they're thinking, you know, about all of this? That the Romans are on something, uh, they, whatever they're, they're thinking about. And they just do what they've always done. They start to charge. And their archers are behind them, and they're shooting the arrows, and they're just flooding the sky with arrows, but they're doing no damage to the Romans whatsoever because they're walking along in these human tanks uh, of theirs. The Roman archers aren't shooting at all. The Romans are just marching. So these guys come charging across. They start to engage and mix up in the the midst of all the the Roman phalanxes, and they're hacking with their axes and spears and whatever else, and they're doing virtually no damage at all. The Romans just keep marching. Finally, the drums stop. 
the Romans stop. A horn blows, the shields drop, and the Romans come out fighting. And all of a sudden, if you're a Goth or a Visigoth or whatever, you realize that wherever you are on the battlefield, you're surrounded. Because your army has been chopped up into little pieces all over the valley, and what, you're between any number of different phalanxes, and they're coming at you from every different angle, and you would be absolutely obliterated. During this time, while they're marching across, the Romans do charge, the archers do charge, uh, start shooting their arrows, but they do, of course, no damage to their own people. They're just wiping out a lot of the Goths and Visigoths. So the strategy was incredibly effective, but it was absolutely dependent on one thing, unity and discipline that brought that unity, that they literally had to have each other's back. They literally fought side by side, and they could not break rank to do that. Now, if anywhere along the line, you know, as they're marching across, and all these, you know, big, hairy, scary people painted in blue or whatever, you know, they're coming to charge. If you got scared, and you decided, you know, well, we need to fight, you know, here, and started to do that on your own, you could end up jeopardizing your particular phalanx, and you could jeopardize the whole that portion of the Roman army. Everybody had to do it in sync. And when they did it in sync, when they cooperated together, when they fought side by side, they were invincible. And we're told by historians, theologians, that over a period of time, uh, as they marched across Gaul, for example, what's now France and this sort of thing, people would line up their army on their side of the valley, Romans would line up on their side of the valley, Romans would go into their marching band routine. These guys would throw their weapons down and run away. They wouldn't even fight anymore because they'd see what was going on and say, so now I get it. I've heard the stories. No way we're beating that. I'm out of here. This was the, the, the effect of their unity. What is Paul trying to tell them? What is he still trying to tell the church? I want to see you so on fire for the gospel that you are living your life in a manner consistent with it, that for you to live is Christ and to die is gain. But I don't want to just see that as ind taking individual expressions. I want to see you finding ways to come together as congregations, as presbyteries, as a denomination, as multiple denominations, whatever it might be. I want to see you coming together, fighting side by side for the faith of the gospel. And when you do this, you are invincible. Nobody can beat you. One of the things that I've, I've learned over the years being involved in missions, whether it's taking our teams to, to Haiti, whether it's doing church planting here in the States or whatever, the challenge is not the mission field. It has never been the mission field. It is all about whether the people of God will work together towards the mission field. And when they do, they are invincible. There's nothing that can stop them. There's nothing that can stop us. Wherever I've gone in the country, people always tell me that wherever place they are in the country is the most difficult place to start a new church. Doesn't matter where. Go to New England, they tell me it's all burned over from history and this sort of thing, and nobody's interested, their hearts are hard, you can't plant churches uh, in New England. You go out to California, they all say nobody cares, they got, you know, they're all fruits and nuts, whatever the case might be, you can't plant churches here very well. Uh, you go to Mormon Utah, which actually has a good argument uh, for it. It's a challenging place uh, to, to start new churches, but it gets done there on a regular, no matter where, or the South, where they say everybody thinks they're 
they're Christian, they're not, so you have to get them unsaved before you get them saved, you know, kind of thing, whatever the situation might be. Everybody's got their own challenges, but the point of the matter is what Paul is telling his people, as, he told, as God told his people in the Old Testament, when they faced massive armies that outnumbered them, he would say, listen, if I'm with you and you do this together, they're actually in the minority. You are actually invincible. And he would go out of his way to show that over and over again. In the Old Testament, he does it in the New. So my exhortation to all of us is consider the gospel. Reflect on that. What is it? Do you have the wonder and joy of your salvation? Have you yet given your life to Christ in the first place where you can have forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and know the power of the gospel in your own life? And then having experienced that, do we then find ways as the people of God, which I think is already the legacy of this church and of our presbytery, do we find ways where we can combine our time and our energies and our resources for the work of the gospel so that we can strive side by side for the faith of the gospel, not just doing things in our own way. See, one of the biggest problems in Christianity is not that people don't love Jesus, it's that they just want to do their own thing and get credit for it or do it in their own way or whatever the case might be as opposed to saying we just simply want to get the job done under the banner of Jesus for the glory of God. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving side by side for the faith of this gospel. That is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, this is a pretty simple, straightforward text, but with a very potent message. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause it to sink deep into our souls. And I pray more than anything else that you will give us always and increasingly the wonder and joy of our own salvation, that it would fuel our worship that it would be the generating force of our service and mission, that we would treat other people with the same grace and love that we ourselves have been treated, that we would strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Father, forgive us for so easily losing sight of these things, for the gospel itself to become old, for our salvation to become ordinary, to even forget what it's all about, let alone experiencing its power and its joy in our lives. Forgive us for coming to places where we just coast in our lives, find ourselves going through the motions. Father, let us be like Isaiah, who when God, you were looking for volunteers, he just jumped up saying, here am I, send me. So excited about the grace he had just experienced. Lord, may that be our testimony as well. May we get up every day to face whatever responsibilities or challenges that we have, being able to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Forgive us of how far short we fall, but Lord, cultivate these things in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
the good news of the gospel from 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God.